All right, uh, let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for getting us here safely. Uh, Lord, be with our time together today as we start to see how you work through church history, how the church has interacted with the arts, has used the arts, sometimes has abused the arts. Lord, teach us through this. In Christ's name, amen. In our evening prayer liturgy, we have something called the Fosiloron. It goes something like this. Oh, gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven. Oh, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the vesper light, we sing your praises, O oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. This little piece, this hymn uh, that we have in our evening prayer liturgy in our current prayer book, dates from the third century. It is the oldest extant hymn of that we know of from the church. The, ch the church has always been a creative people. Even during the times, we think, we think that hymn dates from the late third century, so the 200s, uh, because our earliest record of it comes from uh, comes from Saint Basil the Great. He was uh, he uh, he lived from around 329 to 379, and he already says that it is an old cherished tradition to sing the Fosiloron. Now, you'll see evidences, uh, you'll see versions of this hymn even today. There are, uh, I know in the, um, in the uh, Episcopal hymnal, there was a couple of renditions of it and everything, and you'll just see it sit, uh, translated straight to music as well. The Eastern Church... Uh, uh, sing, sings it a great deal in chant and everything. So, so it is one of those pieces of music, pieces of art that has existed uh, and we've been carrying it along for 1,700 years. <laughs> so, so much uh, from that from the early church period, we still see the legacies of today from, from hymns we sing or pieces of hymns we sing uh, to, to the way we do stuff, especially us in liturgical traditions like Anglicanism. So much of what we do in our services dates back so, 
very, very early in our traditions as Christians. And some things, some symbols even date back to the earliest decades of the church. Okay, who knows what this is? If you can read Greek, it's given away. But everyone's seen it on the backs of cars. <laughs> so, Ichthus, who said it? <laughs> yes, yes, Ichthus, uh, which means fish. Uh, so, so the bottom says the top, really. You will see both of those in early inscriptions. A lot of the time we're going to spend together today is going to be in the catacombs, the burial chambers on the outskirts of Rome and other cities, where you find a lot of what we have left of our early Christian art. Uh, now, the, the top drawing here is a sand drawing. This is not centuries old. This is probably <laughs> a few seconds old, and it's probably long gone by now. Um, but this, this was a very early symbol for Christianity, even more so than the cross. We'll get to the cross in a moment. But, but because Christianity... In those first, uh, in those first, uh, really three centuries up until uh, 313 A.D., it was illegal. Christians found other ways of identifying themselves, even with each other. So this fish, and we'll talk about why it's a fish uh, uh, in a moment. But what a Christian might do. Uh, if, he, if they were in conversation with someone, they might uh, be sort of, uh, they might stick their foot on the ground and trace about this half swoosh on the ground, sort of the, the top half of the fish. And then if, if the other person was a Christian, they might recognize that put their uh, toe in the sand and finish off the second half of that fish. It's like, oh, okay, you are, you are one of us. Uh, of course, this could occasionally get you into trouble if the Romans figured out the, <laughs> the symbolism, but, but that was a very early marker uh, for, for recognizing each other in a setting where, uh, where people could not be trusted and you could not really live openly as a Christian. Why a fish? Of course, we, uh, we remember uh, Jesus uh, uh, saying, I will make you fishers of men. Uh, and, and all of this. And, and fish constantly comes into the gospel story because obviously it's set uh, in, uh, 
in the uh, Holy Land. You know, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got uh, the ocean as well. And, and so this, this fishing symbolism, and it carried on to anywhere that the gospel went around the Mediterranean Sea, which is the first places it went. So it was, uh, it was a constant symbol of what we uh, were and what we could be doing. And also, if you look at the tail of the fish, it's obviously a cross. But explicit crosses would come later. Uh, there was also, notice we have fish written, uh, we have ichthys written uh, there in part of the graffiti. There was this, uh, uh, it became an acrostic. Uh, so, uh, iota, chi, theta, epsilon, sigma. Uh, uh, I'm saying it the Koine Greek way. If you were in Greek life in college, you'll say it a different way. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, so that comes out to Jesus uh, uh, Christos Theon, Hios. Uh, so tear. So roughly, Jesus, Christ, God's Son, Savior. So anytime you saw the fish writ the the ichthys written, you could think, oh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Uh, and so this 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 word and this fish. <laughs> uh, and you will see so many depictions of fish in those early catacomb pieces of art uh, was really the foremost symbol of early Christianity. But it was not the only symbol. And the catacombs give us a ton of pictures of what the thought of the early Christians was. All of these are from catacombs in Rome. So some of them are quite explicitly Christian uh, because there in the, in the burial chambers outside of Rome, uh, you could you know, depict what could not be depicted on the surface. Over here, on the left side, we have Noah, uh, and there's the, there's the dove bringing back the olive branch. Of course, uh, we have over here uh, Adam and Eve, fig leaves, snake. Uh, down here, we have three young men in the fiery furnace, and here we have an early depiction of Jesus um, with the uh, uh, woman with the blood issue being healed. Now, uh, 
it's a bit broad in here, so I don't know how much detail you can uh, you can see about Jesus. But but the way he stressed, also his face, is not really like we see him today. Uh, you know, he's got short hair. He does not have a beard. And he is basically dressed in a toga. So how are these Roman Christians seeing Jesus? They're seeing him as one of their philosophers. That's how they're picturing him in their mind. But the most common portrayal of Jesus, especially before Christianity is made legal, is this. Not even as a philosopher, necessarily, but as a shepherd. The, the Romans and people throughout the Roman Empire, because of where it was, um, were obviously a shepherding culture. You know, they were not... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this, this was a part of their lifestyle, is that there were people who were shepherds. They also uh, had a symbol in, uh, in their uh, Roman pagan culture of a lamb bearer. It was often... Uh, attributed to Hermes, uh, that, that Hermes was a ram bearer. So it was an image that the Christians could easily pick up because we, we know Jesus as the great shepherd. Uh, and he constantly uses this shepherd imagery. Even the Old Testament constantly uses this shepherd imagery, obviously because of David. And so the Christians pick this up, uh, and both of these are, even the sculpture is from the catacombs uh, and de depicts uh, a shepherd who is Jesus, a symbol of Jesus, carrying, uh, carrying a sheep or carrying a ram. And the ram... Uh, people obviously used different uh, analogies at the time, but one of the main analogies uh, uh, is that the ram was, was the burden of the law that Jesus carried for us. So with all these symbols, uh, got that one out of order. We'll go back to that. <laughs> oh, come on. Mm. No? <laughs> okay, there we are. <clears throat> so, 
So what about the cross? The cross was not used a lot in early Christianity, at least not in visual form. One, obviously, it was, it was you know, the most torturous, the, the most despicable way to die uh, that you can think of. Uh, however, it did, even though we don't have lots of early depictions of the cross, it was used in some way fairly early as, as a symbol for Christianity. We know that uh, Syrian Christians, so we're getting, you know, on the far outer reaches of the empire, did hang crosses on the eastern walls of their houses. Uh, and they prayed in that direction at least from the second century. So, the, so sometime in the 100s, uh, they started doing that. And that is something that is not uh, eventually just uh, people on the outskirts of the empire. Most church buildings for centuries, uh, the people would face east. That's, that's still common practice in Catholic churches, in, uh, in Eastern churches. Uh, the church is built uh, where we will, we will be facing east when we worship. Uh, and, and that is where the communion table is, unless conditions don't permit. <laughs> um, but, but that is where they would put the cross in their houses uh, because uh, uh, the sun rises in the east. The, uh, but we know people will make the sign of the cross as well. Now, of course, today, especially, you know, Anglicans here, I, <laughs> uh, we, we think sign of the cross, we think head, chest, shoulder, shoulder. If you're really Anglican, back to the center or something. <laughs> uh, in, in the early church, we, we know that people uh, uh, will make the sign of the cross, the little cross, on their foreheads. Tertullian writes about this in uh, 204 AD. So that's pretty early in the history of the church. And, and Clement of Alexandria, writing around the same time, claims that making the sign of the cross is the Lord's sign. So, so even though we don't see it depicted in art until much later, uh, except for one thing, which I'll tell you about, um, it, it is something that is slowly becoming part of our Christian culture. Um, Constantine will change that. Uh, it becomes very big after Constantine. But uh, one way we do see it depicted in art, and I purposefully uh, did not put this in the slides, is we see it used to make fun 
of Christians. You will see depictions. There's a really famous one uh, in, uh, uh, in the British Museum. Um, but it's a depiction of a naked man uh, on a cross with the head of a donkey and a man bowing before him. It says this man, his name, uh, bowing before his God. So he's basically bowing before a, a crucified donkey. Um, and it was common for things, you know, uh, like that to be depicted denigrating Christianity. Now, again, on the outskirts of the empire, you see, uh, you see a bit more, uh, you know, actual portrayal of uh, Christian figures, Christian, um, Christian symbolism than you do around Rome itself, other than the catacombs. Uh, one, one of those places is is in Egypt. Um, Egypt began, uh, the Coptic Christians, obviously from, from Israel, it was very easy for the, uh, for the gospel to travel to Egypt and lots of other places uh, in the nearer area of the Middle East. The, the Coptic Christians and this is a sixth century work because I couldn't get an older depiction that actually, uh, well, looked good on, the, <laughs> on PowerPoint. Um, but the, uh, the, the Coptic Christians began developing icons very early. And we'll talk more about icons in our next section, because there's so much to their symbolism. Uh, and, uh, but the, the Coptic Christians, they had a few things about their uh, icons left over from their Egyptian past that really stand out and compared to the other icons that we will look at, uh, these are things that you can notice about those from the Coptic culture. Uh, the figures of saints, other holy figures, uh, display uh, eyes and ears. That, uh, uh, you can especially see the eyes here that are especially large in proportion uh, to the rest of the face, uh, smaller mouths, uh, as well as enlarged heads overall. Look at, look at their big heads. <laughs> and that, uh, that signified a special relationship with God. You know, you think big head, you think wisdom. Uh, 
Uh, and so that, that signified their uh, relationship with God, their devotion in prayer, uh, you know, big, big eyes, big ears, but small mouth. Uh, you know, we're not talking, we're, we're, we're seeing, we're listening for the Lord. And martyrs' faces were always painted as being, being very peaceful. So, um, now this, as I mentioned before, this is a 6th century um, icon. And so you're getting a few things by this point that, that will not happen in most Christian art until much later. Um, and we'll talk about that more next time. But the halos, the, um, uh, the bearded Jesus, it's weird to think that a bearded Jesus is an innovation, but it is. And the fact that Jesus is holding a book of the Gospels. Uh, one, it's a codex. Uh, two, it's decorated as we will often see books of the Gospels decorated. And uh, you will see books of the Gospels decorated in a similar manner even until today. But what happened to really change Christian art, Christian symbolism? Constantine. That is when Constantine's conversion, and he saw in mod, he, he claims he saw in a vision a key row, uh, which is a cross and um, and row symbol uh, that's. Uh, it looks like a P, but it's an R. <laughs> uh, but, but he saw that in a vision, and that was the beginning of his conversion to Christianity. It was the beginning of his uh, making Christianity legal. Did that very quickly. And, and so uh, that, you know, that changes things. Christianity becomes explicit. It becomes a practice of that is widely accepted in the whole empire. And of course, Constantine accepts it himself. And so Christians don't have to meet in secret anymore. They don't have to meet uh, in, in houses or burial chambers. They can meet in public and so they need places to meet and so they go to the public places with Constantine's approval there we go so this is a Roman basilica that was not built as a church. This one is actually in Trier, which is 
currently in southwestern Germany, uh, but it is one of Constantine's basilicas. Now, We've probably all seen churches that look somewhat like this, though probably not as old. And of course, you see the, the altar up front. See a little cross hanging there and everything, probably bigger than it looks. Um, but in Roman times, before Christianity, there would have been a throne there. That throne would have been for the emperor or uh, someone presiding at a particular public meeting. These were the meeting houses of the Roman Empire. Each, uh, each town probably had something uh, in the shape of a basilica. Uh, a large city might have several basilica-type uh, places. For gathering, obviously these these chairs are added, and honestly, even when these things became known more as churches, uh, the uh, the chairs were an added uh, feature centuries later. Uh, we um, we would be standing most of the time, or all the time, for centuries. Uh, and so a lot of these public spaces became, became churches and new basilicas were built explicitly as churches. The most famous of these is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. This is the old St. Peter's. This dates from the time of Constantine and, uh, and lasted over a thousand years. It was in quite disrepair by the, by the time that it was rebuilt in the form that we know today. But here we see uh, the, the main center section you see where the Pope would actually uh, uh, sit, as well as an altar back there. It's very hard to read. This is an extremely old drawing. Um, uh, and of course, being it was so huge, they have these side aisles and everything. But you'll notice something. And again, this is a very early Christian basilica you start seeing something taking shape that will continue to be true of churches for centuries. Up there at the top, we suddenly have an aisle going across. We have uh, what will eventually develop into what we call a transept. And, and so the basilica, the Christian basilica, takes on a form that uh, even the Gothic cathedrals and churches thereafter will take on. It's a cross, if you look at it from above. 
And we'll get into, uh, into church architecture a little bit more in a couple of lessons. But, uh, but that cross formation is one of the first things where, where you see the thought, the ideology of Christianity suddenly affecting the way that buildings are built. So, and again, there's going to be more intentionality to that developing as the centuries go forward and, and the theology of the church really starts to permeate the art of the church. So, and yeah, I think we will, we're a few minutes short. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, sure. The, is the ram bearer, is that an early form of the lamb bearer, or is it two different, is it communicating two different things? It is, the, the ram bearer is the, is where, where we start pulling the shepherd imagery from. That's, that's what we would see more in, in, uh, in depictions of Hermes as a shepherd, whatever. We start taking that, and as we start Christianizing it, that ram tends to become more of a lamb. Uh, but it's not necessarily symbolizing two different things. It's more of a, of a taking something, contextualizing it, and slowly owning that imagery as our own in a more true way to, to what we have. Yes. When was um, Constantine's conversion? Constantine's conversion, I believe that was around 313 AD. And so you'll, you'll get very small shift in the way uh, things are portrayed from before that and after that. Lots of our pieces of art will be dated uh, 300 to 350. Uh, because if it's not explicit, like if it's something like, uh, like that statue of the Good Shepherd, that's something that could exist before, um, before Constantine's conversion. But really, uh, look, looking at the fact that one, that is a lamb that that shepherd is carrying. Two, that is, that is a sculpture, and sculptures take you know, a lot of money and effort. That is probably something that could be uh, from, from those catacomb period, from that Constantine period forward. Um, uh, so... so uh, but, but the big difference from Constantine's conversion onward being that Christianity was legal, Christians could meet in public. So, so we start getting uh, the Christian basilicas and all sorts of other very public depictions of faith. Yes? 
getting into the architecture too much, but what were the, the on the left-hand side of the facility, what were those, um, you know, the circle areas, what were those used for? I mean, in the, um, in the schematic over there on the, on the right. Okay, uh, so, so these, and I would honestly have to, um, uh, to, to look at some other material, but, but the, uh, uh, normally back in that uh, period of time, things like baptisms would not happen in the main church building. They would happen in a separate wing of a church. And so there, there might be a baptismal font, which was back then still full immersion, uh, even, even though other things like, uh, you know, we know that infant baptism already existed and everything, but you still had, you know, lots of adult converts and, and there was usually a very big pool uh, to, to do a full immersion experience in. Uh, and so things like that. There were obviously other rooms in the Basilica uh, as well for, um, I mean, you know, we still have things like sacristies today in our churches. And, and things for supplies and stuff like that did exist back then. Uh, we have some very old sacristies that are kind of preserved. So. Yes, Mark. This might only be kind of related, but you talked about making the sign of the cross and it made me think of it. In, in some traditions, I think it's when they're reading the gospel, they'll do kind of here and here. Yeah. Is, is that representative of something? I've, I've never really understood. So, forehead, mouth, heart. Yeah. Yes, yes, forehead, mouth, heart. That, that is something that is, is done in a variety of traditions. Some Anglicans uh, as well do, do that. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, that's, you know, uh, that ancient sign of the cross, as well as, you know, uh, uh, blessing the lips, blessing the heart, uh, uh, just, just symbolically, you know, uh, you know, purify my lips, purify my heart, uh, purify my mind, uh, you know, as the gospel is, is being read, that we would receive that but that small cross that that we make during those times is the same kind of small cross blessing that that dates back to what Tertullian was talking about you know way back you know centuries ago so that that is uh, that is the sign of the cross that seems to go back furthest. We will talk uh, next time about icons. There's so much to talk about icons that um, it needs more time than I can give it today. Um, but you'll see various other forms of the sign of the cross in the, um, in the, in this one, you'll actually see this St. Saint, Minus making sort of a sign of the cross here. Uh, not, not very clearly, but it's this. Uh, uh, there is uh, 
the uh, forefinger and middle finger. Middle finger is crossing the forefinger and uh, the thumb, ring finger, and uh, pinky are together, those three symbolizing the Trinity. You'll also see that done eventually. Ah, <laughs> like, like this. Not, not the way that's sometimes used today. Uh, but, but uh, you know, thumb and forefinger uh, together as, as the two, the dual natures of Christ. Uh, just like this would be the dual natures of Christ. This would be the, uh, uh, the human nature is bowed. This is dual nature of Christ and Trinity. So you'll see that depicted a lot as we go into more iconography and even later symbols. Any questions? More questions. <laughs> All right, um, we finished five minutes early, but that's okay. Uh, thank you guys, and we'll see you next week. Thanks,